Well, welcome back to another episode of Geezers and Gurus on HVAC. Today's episode is going to be on forced air, so so we'll pick up where we left off with the uh, gravity from that last episode. Thank you to Anchor for helping me with this podcast and getting it out to the public. I really appreciate your help. Look them up. Anchor.com. Now, let's get on with it today. So we left at the uh, gravity, got a little bit of history. Franklin's uh, stove to improve uh, the burning of uh, coal, essentially, and get more heat out of it. And uh, actually, uh, how shall I say, uh, because of the way it was set up, with the siphon for the uh, chimney, it uh, uh, didn't allow a lot of heat to get sucked out of the house, and it actually made it turn into one of the better room heaters. He never patented it because he felt that uh, it was a, such a good idea that everybody should have it if they want to make one or improve on his idea without anything, uh, any, having to pay royalties or looking at it, but if he, they could make it better, he was just looking to make it better for mankind. There were others that came along after him and improved it. And one of the things, as it turned out, this led to the uh, invention of the uh, kitchen stove because the, uh, the heater was not practical to cook on. Uh, so they made a separate stove for cooking on in the kitchen. And another industry was got going. We had a lot of history on this before making this podcast, and um, but I'm not going to get into here into a lot of the history. If you want to find out more, you can look that up, Google it. It's very interesting. But what we're talking about is everyday things, things that affect when and why things are changed. In industry, it's usually a matter of cost. You have cycles. If you can't build the house and, and make it so it has all the comforts that you need, uh, like indoor plumbing and central heating, uh, electricity, uh, well, then nobody's going to buy it. So as time went on, it was just the pressure of development um, and costs, uh, especially things like the uh, stock market crashed too in 29. It cost more to put in a steam boiler system than it did to put in a gravity air system. And uh, gravity air systems being used only in a smaller houses, steam was still used in the thir- beginning of the 30s, uh, but it quickly changed to hot water because advances were made in the pumps and in the pipe. Copper pipe came into being and it was much easier to assemble than it was the steel. Adoption of different way of doing things used to come every four years when you had the union strikes. Through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, things changed. So, um, and it changed every time the strike was on because they had to cut cost. So let's get back to the 30s. So now we have the boilers are pretty expensive, so now you're getting people want more houses, so the furnace comes in there. The first worst air blower furnace that I've ever seen was one that I took out with my father as a kid. It was a blower attached to the, to the gravity furnace 
with some filters in it. I'm not sure if it was made by Lau or if it was made by Mueller. Uh, I think I think it was an attachment made by Mueller. Mueller was making uh, furnaces, and I noticed that uh, they were making furnaces with blowers on it. It was basically the guts of a gravity furnace with a nice square casing on the side of it and a blower added to the back end. Those were the first ones. Coals went out of favor. Uh, people were not using coal as much. One of the things that happened is, is the kitchen changed. Gas stoves were being used and the wood stoves were now gone. Now, it wasn't even wood stoves, they were burned with coal. So they were gone. And another thing happened in 1927, this company called General Electric uh, started making refrigerators for a kitchen instead of ice boxes. Not long after that, electric uh, ranges were made. So you had the appliances changing. So coal, you had to have a coal bin in your house. You had to have uh, somebody come and deliver a ton or two of coal at a time. Uh, we've all seen the coal bins change into workshops and other things over the years, too. They had that nice little door that you could only open from the inside. When coal was being burnt, uh, it wasn't like today, so the, how, what, how do you recycle the ash? If you're burning tons of coal, you're going to get a lot of ash. There used to be ash buckets that you could buy at the hardware store. You can still get them today. Some of the older hardware stores will have these uh, round tubs that people use for dunk tubs for the various things. Those were actually ash buckets that for, with uh, coal ash in it. You take those uh, things up and you take them outside and you go past your horse uh, barn and to the alley because you're in a city you have an alley that's your access and that's where you would spread your ashes and your your cinders and the alley would be covered with cinders side to side and it would prevent the weeds from growing in and it stabilize the ground but the water would still dissipate um, I, I know that because my father's driveway at his shop was that way for 40 years the 30s started to change over to the forced air uh, the stylized bodies and started making these furnaces they were called streamlined and a lot of them had chrome on them and really beautiful nameplates and all of this stuff and there were dozens of different ones even the car companies made their own there was uh, uh, Delco Heat there was Calvinator there was Philco Garwood uh, also made them Floco Floral City Furnace Company Williamson 5 and 1 Torrid Heat, Luxair, and uh, Lennox, and Heil Quaker, and Ideal, and Mueller, and Tropic Breeze, and Bryant, and Ream, and AFCO, which is the American Furnace Company out of St. Louis. And there were many, many, many more. A lot of them were made locally. These are big units, so if they shipped them only in the next couple of states, that's all they had to do. I'm not sure when Luxair first started making their A-series furnace. It had a uh, large barrel type heat exchanger and uh, a nice casing on the outside, nice colors. It was made in Ohio. And that had a universal heat exchanger to drum type. And you could put either an oil or a gas burner in it, depending on what was available in your area. In order to be installed and approved, they had to be AGA, American Gas Association, tested and certified, and UL certified. 
I mean, so every time you change the design and it made something better, you had to get new certification. For some companies, this was just an overwhelming task, and they found that their time uh, has run out for the, the equipment that they were making. And consolidation of companies. Basically, larger companies would buy up smaller companies' brand names so they could get their territory and customers. But the uh, manufacturing facilities are not always utilized, so it was just a brand. Well, let's get back to the uh, first four stairs. So now we have competition. Uh, they're kind of universal. They would be called basement model units. They were developed for uh, uh, places that had basements. Uh, they were lower than uh, the big gravities and everything, and you could put ductwork on them and put them at one end of the basement and run your ductwork through, and that gave you a usable basement because a lot of those basements were used for the summertime kitchens and the... Uh, Oh, I know the German, Polish, and Italians in the Detroit area, they all had their kitchens in the basement in the summertime because if they could cook and do the thing without heating the whole house up and it was cooler down there. There was no air conditioning, so it was a great relief from the heat upstairs. The dual furnaces were very popular. Uh, uh, when things would happen with either the oil supply or natural gas supply, they could be converted back and forth either way. And I saw in my dad's desk when we were moving out the shop, these were from the late 50s. Uh, there was a economic downturn at that time in, in the late 50s, and uh, it was, must have been for oil or something because these were converting uh, your oil Luxair furnaces to gas, including the permit, the burner, taking out the oil tank, taking out any oil that you might have, converting the furnace over and putting in a new gas line. All of that for $155 installed. My dad said he did a lot of them and he reclaimed enough oil to uh, actually hit his own shop for many years because there were thousands of those things put in. Natural gas is available in most, by most metropolitan areas and has been for a very long time, since the 1900s. When you get into rural America and when you get into mountainous America, whether the East Coast or the West Coast, you're limited on how far the natural gas can put in. And on the East Coast, Maine and Vermont and New Hampshire, they call it the Granite State, and they call it that for a reason. It's near impossible to get a gas line in there with, through that solid granite. So what happens is, is oil and LP gas are the two major things. They both cost about the same, I think, uh, to uh, use, so that it's not like they're really in competition with each other. Units that were built in the um, 30s and in the 40s were all pretty much the same. They didn't change them a lot back then for a couple of reasons. Number one, there was a war on. They didn't make as many furnaces as they would normally during peacetime. It was sort of like a priority because of the amount of metal. He also did a little redeveloping on them to try and make them a little less, how should I say, bulky, so that they used less metal. That really showed up at the end of the Second World War. Uh, furnaces started to uh, get to a point where they were, companies were starting to make gas-only furnaces. Janitrol was one of those companies. General Electric made one. It was a high-pressure system used only four-inch round supply ducts, and that there were a lot of those around. Um, 
other ones that were made of, I think Bryant made of gas-only furnaces too. So they were starting to make them smaller, but oil was still used in a major part of the United States and still is today, only because there's no gas available. Of course, there's LP gas available in most areas, and you'll have your choice between oil or LP, but uh, LP is expensive too, just like oil. We're talking about the furnaces that were so, let's say, three feet wide, four feet high, and six feet deep, uh, basement model type. Ace type series, which it can be either one, where they started putting in the first duct systems off of there. And the duct systems were called, uh, how should I, airflow duct systems. And they were built, they were designed in the 30s. And they didn't have a lot of a sense when they designed them. They had lacked a little bit. And we'll talk about that right here. Because you see, they, uh, we're still going off the gravity design. Houses were still quite small. 22 foot wide would be the most of the room that made of rooms uh, approximately 10 to 12 feet deep. And uh, they would work with one heat run in them. When you get closets in there, sometimes it's even narrower than that. So, now, with that said, it wasn't so necessary, especially if you're putting a little forced air behind it, to have the heat runs at the outside wall so that they work quite well. But they were thinking it wasn't air pressure. It had to be quiet and this and that, so they were all belt drive. And they were called airflow. You didn't ramp that puppy up. You were only heating. There was no air conditioning involved. So you would get that thing up to a nice slow, oh, 150 degree bonnet temperature. And then the blower would come on and then and didn't wind up like the ring, ring, ring. No, it was a belt drive, so we got it going. And it would sit there and rumble along for the next 20 minutes, pumping out this grand and glorious heat that was very similar to the gravity furnaces that they replaced. And let's go talk about that duct system. Everybody has seen them, and some of them might have really got pretty wide. And this is why they got wide. They got wide because they used to use two sizes of taps, duct taps, off those things. The duct was eight inches tall. If you were going it to a duct that was going to the first floor, it would be four by eight. If you're going to a duct that was going to the second floor, it would be five by eight. Both of these were uh, converted to, the four by eight was converted to three and a quarter by ten to go up into the wall, and the five by eight was converted to a three and a quarter by 12, which ran through the stud spaces to the second floor heats. Let's say they started with a four by eight and then the next one was a five by eight and a four by eight. Well, right there, the duct size with three runs was uh, nine by eight. And if you add another one, now you're 13 by eight at a, a second floor and you're you see where you can get into 18 by 8, your, the duct got too wide for the amount of runs they had on there. They didn't see it that way, but the, that's how that duct grew. My father looked at it and said, well, that doesn't work correct. So he designed his duct system that only increased 2 inches for each tap. Didn't matter if it was first floor or second floor. And also turned out years later that you could add air conditioning on it with 
very good results because of that. Talking about things that changed the heating business. Well, the end of the Second World War changed the heating business a lot. Now they're coming back, and we were gearing up to making things like furnaces and everything else. We now needed more than just a few furnaces. We needed a lot. So the design started to change. Where oil was necessary, they had companies that would make oil furnaces. The A-series is still being made. That was made right up into the mid-50s because sometimes you would get into areas where you, gas was available, but just because you had gas on the street didn't mean you were going to get gas to your house that year. You may not, you, if you had like 40 houses and uh, only 16 of them would actually get gas, so they'd have like a little lottery system to soup get it, the rest of them would get oil, and you could try next year to see if you could get gas. So as a new building started across the country, the city wanted permits. Well, you have to, if you're pulling permits, then you maybe you want to have an inspection. So if you're going to have an inspection, you need something what they call codes. So the first attempt at the international manual code was done after Second World War when there was a boom across this country in the building business. The equipment manufacturers had their own books and instructions with the equipment, but that wasn't good enough because different manufacturers had different instructions. That wasn't even all together. So somebody had to do something. We needed something more universal. So they hired mechanical engineers, the government did. Got them from across the United States in different areas. They knew that mechanical engineers working in the Detroit area would look at things differently than the ones working in St. Louis or the ones working in Dallas, Texas. All of that was taken into consideration when they were starting to write the first codes. But they had no idea. They were all very smart gentlemen. Being engineers, they could figure out airflows and everything else. But the units and the systems and the duct systems and all of the stuff that was being put in then was done by thumb by the guys locally who figured out how to do it and how to make it work. So this engineer by the name of Ed Ruth used to come to my dad's shop every Tuesday and they'd sit down and they'd have lunch. Sitting on my dad's bench and Ed would ask my dad questions about airflow, about placing the system and what sizes did you use and why did you use what you used. And they talked of many things, like the gauge of the pipe for the flue pipe going to the chimney. Should it be 22 gauge, 24 gauge, 26, 28? They talked about warm air ducts and how they should be sealed for uh, forced air and for gravity. There was a difference. They talked about where the hangers should be. Uh, how do you hang the duct? What type of hangers do you use? Um, how the distance between the, the ductwork in the bottom of the joist. And one time, if you got closer than two inches by the furnace, you had to put a piece of asbestos above it. So uh, all of that was part of the code. And the code got to be really long and fused, and we were talking about gas lines of the code. The heating guys are also responsible for the chimney and the placement of the thimbles in the chimney. I did many of those when I was a kid. Place, we put a lot of thimbles in there for the hot water tank, for the incinerator, and for the furnace. So now the codes are in place, and furnace technology changed a lot over the years. The, uh, we saw the uh, 
drum type heat exchangers evolve into the clamp type heat exchangers for gas. The uh, oil furnaces have pretty much still stayed just pretty much the same. But the uh, gas one's pretty interesting. It, Reem at one time had a porcelain coated heat exchanger. Uh, 20th century Zephyr was in a brand new furnace that was in a friend of mine's house when they bought it back in the early 70s. They had just put it in. It came with a lifetime warranty. 20th century Zephyr. This thing was 240,000 BTUs of cast iron furnace. It was amazing. It never would wear out. It would last forever in a day, but the amount of energy it would take to heat his house, which he did on the first year, I believe. Well, what happened was is I put out the Series 1 uh, Comfort Maker 92% efficient furnace in that house and his gas bill dropped 50%. But when a, the previous owner found out that he had gotten rid of that furnace, he said, oh my God, why did you do that? It's the best furnace ever made. It would last forever. Yeah, and cost a ton of money. I did change the primary heat exchanger in that furnace at one time, and it was covered under warranty because it was a lifetime warranty on it. Just a small side note. It's still running to this day. I look at it every time I visit them. The biggest change in force there actually came with all of our new style upflow furnaces. They, they started in the 50s with this company, that company doing it, but it just took off and became universal. And uh, now they're universal. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but they're all pretty much exactly the same physical height in that I do believe that's so that robots in the future can replace them. It's the only reason why every furnace manufacturer in America would take, make things that are almost exactly identical to each other. Civilization has uh, made our houses dry out. We no longer hang the laundry in the basement on wash day to dry them in the wintertime. We have clothes dryers. We no longer cook soup for an hour or two on the stove. Another thing, before the invention of permanent press, uh, everything had to be starched that you wanted to look unwrinkled or ironed with a steam iron. All of this added humidity to the house on a daily basis and the way people lived was a lot different. Now that we don't live that way, we need to add humidity to our houses. Humidifiers have been around for a long time on all of our equipment. The power ones came in the late 50s, early 60s. Autoflow was the first one that I remember. But actually, there was a company that was not known for its, uh, how shall I say, heating businesses as much as it was for its catalogs and other things. But the Sears power humidifier that came out in the late 50s, and I don't know how long it was made, it never was a really good one, but you could go to Sears and pick up the parts for it, and then what made it for the homeowner to be able to change a little teeny tiny pad it had on there, and it made you feel good. At one time, there was more Sears power humidifiers out there than there were anybody else's. Other department stores were also selling power humidifiers. J.L. Hudson's locally sold the Autoflow, which was a local manufacturer. The Autoflow made two different models. The 40 was painted green, and the 80 was a stainless steel model. We used a lot of the 80s. 
There's also one that came along later without the fan on it, and it was called a 25, and it had a bypass pipe on it, a 5-inch bypass pipe. Both the 40 and the 80 had a fan on it that drew air through the pad and then returned the air back to the plenum. It came right off the hot air plenum, and the water that wasn't evaporated went down into a pan that had a pump, and it would be pumped back up to the top of the pad. The water reservoir on the bottom where the pump sat and had a float in it, and that would maintain the water level so the pump never went dry. And it worked pretty good, but running the water through it over and over and over again until you evaporated, it was quite built up with a lot of minerals that needed to be cleaned. I remember removing an in-place self-wash electronic air cleaner that was actually put in in the 40s. It hadn't worked in a very long time, but it was really very interesting because I didn't start to really put in electronic air cleaners until Honeywell started making the package one to 20 by 25, one uh, multiple cell ones, and they used to give you a big plastic tub so that you could wash them once a month. Try to talk your customers into doing that. They can't get them to change a filter, let alone gonna take it out and wash it. It was like a two hour ordeal. So then they tried the other ones everybody tried try on, came out with the first ones with the nice little split cells so that you can stick them into your dishwasher. Another thing that people want to do every month is to pull the electronic air filter cells out of their furnace and stick them in their dishwasher and run them through a cycle. I don't think they would even work on today's dishwashers. That's why for the last 25 years or so I haven't put in anything other than a media filter. Um, I'd like to try on, so I put in that, I put in general, I put in several different ones. They all seem to be very good. 90% uh, of what I was using was the right angles because they, you can put in a filter that does, uh, you can use a 20 by 25 on a smaller blower size opening and uh, actually take up less footprint than you would is if you put a, a filter on alongside the furnace and put a drop duck on top. Uh, you save about four or five inches in your space on that. The right angle, it makes it nice too because it, the way the pleats line up, that's almost like turning veins in there for the airflow. Another nice thing about it. It is also faster to change that than a regular filter because of the large, pretty much the history of the furnaces and everything kind of bringing us up to modern day. And the biggest thing that we have going on right now are the new thermostats, and there's a lot of them. It used to be White Rogers, Honeywell, Robert Shaw were probably the only ones out there. We saw the Nest come in, which is an interesting stat. I've heard things good and bad about it. Um, people I know who have them like them. So there are, I said, gee, I want to go and check on all the new uh, Wi-Fi thermostats. So I went online. Up pops a YouTube video, the best Wi-Fi thermostats of 2019, followed, and there was five of them. And the next one I saw was the best Wi-Fi thermostats of 2020. Now, whoever assembled this video, I don't know how they figure best or whatever, but the reality is, is all of this, both of them, all they boil down to is their videos from the thermostat manufacturers. One of them doesn't even tell you its features at all. It just says, hey, we got a really good one. Call us up, we'll send you a thermostat. Uh, today's world is a little more complicated than that. 
I think besides a Wi-Fi capable Desensi thermostat by uh, White Rogers, uh, Emerson Electric, um, is probably the simplest because it's basically a setback thermostat that you can reset back or change uh, from your mobile phone. And then it gets into the more exciting ones that actually sense your presence in the house and different that. Not all of these thermostats do that. Another thing they're forgetting too, and nobody mentioned on any of these things, and like I said, they're just a, um, how shall I say, an advertisement. There was no useful information on it. None of them discussed the uh, inner reactions of which ones will also sense humidity, which ones will also work in with dehumidification with your air conditioning, which ones will work with the air changers that are now required in houses. Some of them do, most of them don't. So that's really important. So I can't do anything with it now because I'll flat out tell you there's not enough information on the uh, Internet that uh, actually gives, makes, allows you to make a good decision. So we're going to do a whole podcast on these things after I can go and find some information on it because i got to go beyond YouTube. I'm going to have to go to the manufacturers and talk to some of the reps and some of the other people to get really good information on which ones are compatible with the systems we're putting in now. And I know there's a lot of guys across the country there that uh, could care less and don't want to even sell setback thermostats or programmable ones because they'll have to teach their customers how to use it. Uh, that's like t selling, telling me that uh, you sell TV sets but you don't sell them with remotes because you have to tell the, show the customer how to reuse the remote. So we're going to end this podcast here. You're not going to get your answers on thermostats until I can get some more from the manufacturers and get a, a pretty good list going here of what does what. You can't make a decent decision unless you have all the answers. So until next time, thank you, Anchor, again for helping me with the podcast. And this is Geezers and Gurus on HVAC. This is Carl Darge. And remember, Darge did it.